No trash, just truth. I'm Rose Spiller. And I'm Chris Paxson. And we're your hosts and the co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries. If you've been listening, you know that we've been stressing how important the doctrine, which is our set of beliefs, and theology, what we believe about God, are in our Christian walk. It's crucial. It's also crucial, as we discussed in the last episode, that we understand that we're saved by faith alone in Jesus alone. In this episode, we're going to bring all these things together. What is our doctrine and theology when it comes to Jesus? To help answer that, just as we did with God the Almighty Father, we're going to dig in to get a foundational knowledge of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus the Son. You know, it's not unbelievable that we constantly offend God by breaking His precepts and commands. But it is unbelievable that God the Son, Jesus, would want to leave heaven and come to earth to pay that penalty for us. It is unbelievable. And if we've been blessed to be one of the ones Jesus has saved, we should want to learn everything about him. We should certainly want to make sure that what we do know about him lines up with scripture. You're not kidding. There are some crazy ideas out there about who Jesus is. Like, why do so many depict him as being effeminate with milky white skin and blue eyes and flowing blonde hair? Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew. He was most likely dark-complected with brown eyes and wavy brown hair. And he was a carpenter who built furniture and houses. There wasn't anything effeminate about him. And then there's the betrayal that makes you wonder, when did he find the time to build furniture and houses (laughs) since he was always walking around cuddling and petting his lamb? Oh. Charles Dickens wrote a book called The Life of Our Lord in order to explain Christ to his children. In his book... Jesus comes off as a kindly old British nanny who gently admonishes her charges to be good. And the bad interpretations of Jesus continue even today. A former NFL football player said if Jesus were alive today, he would be the toughest guy on the football field. He'd be 6'2", 260 pounds, defensive tackle. He would make all of the big plays and it would be impossible for any offense to win. I got another one. In the 1977 miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth, the director wanted to convey Jesus's all-knowing gaze. And he did this by having Jesus only blink once in the entire series. (laughs) That's just stupid. Why did he only blink once? I have no idea. (laughs) Whether in art or literature or media and even in churches, Jesus has been portrayed in more different ways over the last 2,000 years than we could possibly count. We need to be sure that Jesus in our mind and heart is the Jesus from Scripture. And I can tell you for sure that Jesus isn't even close to any of these heretical views. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, now that we've seen the bad portrayals, let's talk about who Jesus really is. We've already looked at Jesus as part of the Trinity in episode 4 when we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity. So we won't discuss that again. But there's a lot more about Jesus we do need to discuss. There certainly is. When looking at Jesus in addition to the doctrine of the Trinity, we need also to add the doctrine of the Incarnation. We've probably all heard the word Incarnation applied to Jesus before, so we should probably define it. Incarnation means a person who embodies in the flesh a deity or spirit. The doctrine of the Incarnation says that the Lord Jesus became human in every way. Well, except one, and we're going to get to that later. Yeah, The name Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua or Yeshua, and that means God saves. The name Christ is the Greek equivalent of Messiah, which means anointed deliverer. So when you put the name Jesus Christ together, it means God saves through an anointed deliverer. And that's exactly what God did. It's what the Trinity had planned before the foundation of the world, 
It's what God promises in Genesis 3.15, and it's what everything in the Old Testament points to. You know, a theologian named J. Barton Payne, he noted that there are 574 passages in the Old Testament that are prophecies of the coming of Jesus. That's amazing. And you know what the odds of one man fulfilling all of those prophecies is? It's so big, it's not even a known mathematical number. But Jesus fulfilled every single one of those when he came to earth. Amazing. You know, Chris, I don't think any Bible-believing Christian would argue that Jesus became man when he was born to Mary. But I wonder how deeply many of us have thought about this. Jesus became fully human in every way. When we line up the doctrine of the incarnation with the doctrine of the Trinity, which says Jesus is fully God, we get that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. This is definitely worth spending some time on. When Jesus came to earth, he was fully man, but in no way did his becoming fully man change that he was fully God. Jesus did not give up any of his divine nature when he was born a baby. He was absolutely in every way fully a human baby, but he was absolutely in every way still fully God. This truth was so important that it was one of the major topics at a conference held in Chalcedon in the year 451. The Chalcedonian Creed came out of this. Maybe you've heard of it. This doctrine has three truths about Jesus, fully man, fully God. Number one, Jesus has two natures that are both full and complete. He is fully God and he is fully man. Number two, each nature is distinct. One nature does not change or take away from the other nature in any way. And number three, Christ is only one person. Both natures exist in the one person of Christ. Jesus cannot split his nature and become two separate beings. Today, all Orthodox, Christian, and Catholic denominations accept the Chalcedonian Creed as truth. A proper understanding of these truths clears up a lot of confusion and difficulties that we might have in our minds. Questions like, why did Jesus have to become fully man? Or, how could Jesus have hungered and died when he was on earth and yet still be God? Is Jesus still human now and does he still have a human body? Or did God die on the cross? So Rose, let's try to answer some of these questions. All right, well, let's start with why did Jesus have to become fully man to save his people? He's God. Why couldn't he just save them? There's a few reasons. Jesus had to be fully human to stand in the place of humans and pay the debt humans owed God. Remember, God's perfect justice had to be satisfied. We talked about the animal sacrifices done in the Old Testament when they did them to obtain the forgiveness of sins from God. Well, one of the reasons these sacrifices weren't sufficient to be a permanent fix for sin was because they were sacrificing animals. Only a human could take the place of humans to make atonement. And just like the animals had to be without blemish, the human who would be sacrificed had to be perfect also. Hebrews 2.17 teaches this truth. He had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus did have to be fully human, but he also needed to be fully God so he could defeat Satan and death. It was because Jesus was fully God that he had the power to be resurrected. His crucifixion defeated our sin, but by being resurrected, he defeated death and Satan. Jesus testifies to his being fully God in John 10 verse 30 when he says, I and the Father are one. If Jesus had been just a man, he would not have had the power to save us. If he were only God, he wouldn't have been a satisfactory sacrifice to pay the price for human sin. 
This is why only Jesus could be the perfect Savior. Amen to that. So what does it mean that Jesus is both fully God and fully man? Well, to start, each nature, man and God, have their own distinct properties, as the creed says. They don't mix and mesh into one nature. Jesus has always been fully God and will remain fully God for all eternity. However, he hasn't always been fully man. He became fully man at his birth. And although he only became fully man at birth, he remains fully man for all eternity now. Jesus physically resurrected. Although his body was glorified at his resurrection, it was still his fully human body. And when he ascended into heaven, he ascended as both fully man and fully God. It would make no sense for him to have done this if he was simply going to ditch his body and stop being man when he arrived in heaven. And we know this isn't the case because when Jesus comes back, it will be as fully God and fully man as we see in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. How Jesus' two natures, fully God and fully man, interact together is a mystery. One that our finite minds can't possibly comprehend, but it's an important truth to get. The attributes that were true about one nature are true about the other, yet the two natures are distinct. They do not alter one another's essential properties, and they do not mix together in a kind of third nature. They are two separate and distinct natures residing in the one person of Christ. Right. So, Chris, what did Jesus having two distinct natures look like? Well, it's kind of crazy. Jesus, fully God, could have easily transported himself and the disciples wherever they needed to go. He didn't need to walk miles and miles in the hot sun. He could have produced a feast when he and his disciples were hungry instead of them having to pick grains of wheat to fill their bellies. But wait, we do see examples of Jesus doing the things you just described. When he got in the boat after he calmed the storm, he and his disciples were transported to the other side of the lake. And of course, there's the two accounts where Jesus feeds thousands of people with just a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. You're right, but there's a good reason why Jesus sometimes pulled out his divinity and at other times he kept himself completely limited to his humanity. Jesus chose to limit himself to his human flesh when it came to fulfilling his own needs. We never see him transport himself because he's tired or producing food because he's hungry. And because he was fully human, he did get tired and hungry. It's only when he is meeting the needs of others or when he's giving people, mostly his disciples, a glimpse of the glory of God that he uses his fully God nature. When we look at Jesus' life on earth, we see that he perfectly fulfills the command given to humans to love your neighbors as yourself. One of the reasons Jesus limited himself to his physical body was so he could empathize with everything that we go through. Moreover, he often healed people just because he came across them and he had compassion on them. And when he was on the cross in agony and about to die, he prayed for those who put him there. How's that for a picture of what loving your neighbor as yourself looks like? You're right about that. Jesus also exemplified the other command given to humans, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything Jesus did, he gave glory to God the Father, not himself. If you look at everything he says, God the Father is always mentioned in a big part of it. His relationship with God the Father was his biggest priority as evidenced when he regularly went off alone to spend time with his Father and talk to him in prayer. That's an incredible picture of what loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength should look like for us. Certainly is. And along the lines of Jesus doing the human thing perfectly, Jesus has been called the second Adam. That might seem a little odd, maybe even insulting, that Jesus would be compared to Adam. But there's good reason for it. 
If you recall, right after John the Baptist baptized Jesus and before he started his earthly ministry, he spent 40 days in the wilderness without eating or drinking. At the end of his time, Satan comes and tries to tempt him. The narrative is an intentional contrast to Genesis 3. Adam was put in a luxurious, perfect paradise. Jesus went into the wilderness. When scripture talks about the wilderness, it doesn't mean what we might think of as wilderness. It wasn't a forest. It was a rocky desert. So while the first Adam was in the best possible surroundings, Jesus, the second Adam, was in the worst. And the contrast continues. Luke 4 gives the account of Jesus being tempted by Satan. Jesus, the second Adam, succeeds in all the ways that the first Adam failed. The first Adam was surrounded by fruit trees and had access to as much food as he wanted. Yet Genesis says he and Eve looked at the forbidden fruit and saw it was good for food. When Satan tries to tempt a very hungry Jesus with turning stones into bread, he refuses, saying that man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word of God. And while the first Adam was lured by what was a delight to the eyes when he saw the piece of fruit, when presented with ruling over all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus declines, saying, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the first Adam was fooled by Satan's twisting of God's word when presented with something that would make one wise like God. In stark contrast, when Satan twists the meaning of Psalm 91, trying to persuade Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple so he could show everyone that he was the son of God, Jesus rebukes him by accurately presenting God's word, saying, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Finally, Rose, we said earlier that Jesus was born human in every way except for one. Just like the first Adam, Jesus was born without a sin nature. So like the first Adam, Jesus had the ability to not sin. Again, Jesus, the second Adam, succeeds where the first Adam failed. Adam had one rule and couldn't keep it. Jesus, like us, was surrounded by temptation every day of his earthly life, yet he never gave in to sin. The sin of the first Adam led to the condemnation of all, but the righteousness of the second Adam leads to justification and life for all men who are called by God. Knowing that Jesus justified us by living a perfect life and being crucified on the cross brings us to the last question we asked in the introduction. Chris, since Jesus was fully God, did God die on Good Friday? That might seem like a strange question, but I bet it's one that people have wondered. While Jesus' two natures both resided in him, Jesus' divine nature did not die at the crucifixion. It was Jesus' human nature that died on the cross. Therefore, we should never say that Jesus' death on the cross was the death of God. Humans die, God cannot. But what we can say is that although it was Jesus' human nature that died, somehow his divine nature also experienced death because of the union of the two natures. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, says this, By virtue of union with Jesus' human nature, his divine nature somehow tasted something of what it was like to go through death. The person of Christ experienced death. Thanks. I think you did a good job clearing that up. Another point I want you to touch on and clear up is what did Jesus actually experience at his crucifixion? That's a great question, Rose. So often when we think of what Jesus went through on Good Friday, we think about the physical agony he endured. And he certainly did endure physical agony, probably more than any of us will ever experience. But his taking the punishment for our sin was about more than just being physically beaten and crucified. While on the cross, Jesus had the wrath of God poured out on him. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but it was horrible enough that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus, who had never known anything but a perfect relationship with his father, was feeling what it was like to be on the receiving end of God's judgment. Can you even imagine what that must have been like for him? I can't. But boy, does that really give us a picture of just how great a price Jesus paid for us. It certainly does. But thankfully, the story doesn't end with the crucifixion. On the third day, Jesus is resurrected. So Chris, Jesus' resurrection is about a lot more than Jesus just coming back to life. We should look at what his resurrection means for believers. We should. Well, first, as we said, Jesus' resurrection was the victory over Satan and death. If Jesus' death on the cross was the end of the story, he would have just been a martyr and our condition would remain unchanged. But since he was resurrected and he's imputed his standing to us, both he and we have prevailed over sin, Satan, and death. And a second thing Jesus' resurrection means for us is that it shows us that justice will prevail. We live in a society where justice is often perverted or neglected, but the resurrection means that God's perfect justice will ultimately triumph. God will always prevail over evil. That is encouraging. And Jesus' resurrection assures our future resurrection. Just as Jesus both died and was raised in body, so we will be too. There's a mystery as to what exactly our resurrected bodies will look like. I mean, I am hoping for Chris Paxson version 2.0. I'd go for that. (laughs) Yeah, me too. But if our resurrected bodies are anything like Jesus's, and they certainly should be, then just as his disciples recognized him, we should be able to recognize our loved ones. And that's exactly why for Christians, death on earth is not a final goodbye. One final thing we should talk about that Jesus' resurrection means for us is that it initiated the coming of the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling in believers, giving them the power to live out the Christian life. In Old Testament times, as you're going to look at more in the next episode, Chris, the Holy Spirit came and went within people. However, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came permanently to indwell within the heart of believers. It is crazy to think, but if we're in Christ... We have more spiritual fortitude than anyone in the Old Testament, including Moses, Daniel, and the prophets. We can press forward regardless of our circumstances and persevere here on earth knowing we're not alone and that we do not do anything in our own strength. We have the living God not just with us, but in us. He's working in us, sanctifying us day by day, so we slowly begin to resemble Jesus. So Chris, with all the victories Jesus won at his crucifixion and resurrection, Why is the world such a mess? If Jesus completely defeated sin, Satan, and death, why does bad stuff still happen? When we look at all the evil in the world, it can make us wonder that exact thing. But rest assured, Jesus did completely defeat sin, Satan, and death. Satan's destruction was sealed in Genesis 3.15 and came to fruition at Jesus' resurrection. Satan is defeated, and he knows he is. But Jesus is allowing him a limited reign on earth right now. However... Even this limited reign is under the sovereignty of God, and Satan can do nothing without permission from Jesus. Mark 1 verse 27 shows us this. He, meaning Jesus, even gives orders to the evil spirits and they obey him. Jesus will put an end to Satan's reign at his second coming when the defeat of Satan, which he has already secured, comes to culmination. And we see this truth in Revelation 20 verse 10. The devil who deceived him was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The destruction of Satan and evil forever is a good place to end today. Jesus only physically walked this earth for 33 years. His entire ministry lasted only three years. 
In his earthly lifetime, the total number of people Jesus spoke to would not even fill one sports stadium. The distance between the two farthest places Jesus traveled, Jerusalem and Damascus, was only 201 miles. If you published a book with the words Jesus spoke in the Bible, it would be less than 150 pages. Yet even amongst the unbelieving secular world, Jesus has often been called the greatest man who has ever lived. We, of course, know that Jesus is much more than the greatest man who ever lived. He is the incarnate, holy, sovereign God, King and Savior, who we owe every breath to. Amen to that. In our next episode, we're going to delve into the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss an episode. Have a blessed day.